Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We are back to finish The Keys of December, a uh, short story by Roger Zelazny. And this is our discussion episode, and uh, I think we can just get right into it since it will have only been, I don't know, 48, 72 hours or something like that since we uh, since we released the recap episode. So I want to begin, as I almost always do, by talking about world building. And I just want to go back all the way to the beginning of the story and look at what Zelazny gives us about the, the world that is the origin of Jerry Dark. And, and, and then we'll, we'll finish up by talking about the world that Jerry Dark uh, moves to creates himself and and dies in eventually. But I, I want to go back to Jerry's birth, right? It's sort of a question of how to have a baby in the future. And and we brought this up a little bit in the in the recap episode as well. But there's questions of of why did Jerry's parents even want to have a child to begin with, knowing that they can't actually afford to have a child, or at least that there are some other reason, some other compulsion that dictates that they are going to have to send their child to another planet to work as child labor in a mine. I have just had a baby or, or, you know, my wife and I have just had a baby, but if this had been the, what was going to happen to our baby, we would have probably chosen not to become parents. So I'm really interested in, in why Jerry's parents made the opposite choice that they wanted to give birth so badly that they were willing to create a new person who was going to have to be an indentured servant on another planet against his will. I wonder if Zelazny is just engaging with cultural norms of the time he's writing the story, of the expectations of what it means to be a family, to be an adult, your responsibilities to others, to have a kid, to to build a family. I want to read, actually, this bit that Zelazny writes about this to see whether or not it really shines a light on the question Because it's a big question, and I think it's, as I said, engaging with maybe norms that we just don't have in our society as much anymore. But this is what Zelazny writes. When his parents, that's Jerry's parents, had presented themselves at the Public Health Planned Parenthood Center and requested advice and medication pending offspring, they had been informed as to the available worlds and the body form requirements for them. And so I think what Zelazny's pointing to uh, with that sentence of world building is that that is the only way to have a kid. You have to go request a medication from a a government facility or some government funded facility or something like that uh, in order to maybe turn your reproductive system back on or to take prenatal meds. It's not really quite clear. And that you get to have a kid if you pick the world and the life that that kid is going to be born into indentured servitude in. And so my sense is that that in this vision of the future, people have children and those children work as kids. It's a child labor system. And then when they're adults, they're responsible for finding their own work and making their own way and kind of perpetuate the system. So I think Zelazny is challenging some cultural norms there uh, and also trying to demonstrate new norms of... Uh, I don't know, reproductive freedom, which was new in the 60s, pretty much, and the potential consequences of that, and then also showing us almost a dystopia of a sense where you, because you can control whether or not you have kids, and you're marrying for love, ostensibly, there's more control over the reasons why you have kids. And it's almost for the economic value of the child 
there are a list of worlds you can choose from and you can design your kid to work in that world. And so he's he's kind of showing this tension uh, that's taking place in the cultural changes that are happening in the 1960s. Yeah, I like your reading of this because one of the things it has certainly pointed out is some of the assumptions, the 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 unearned, I think, assumptions that I brought to the sex, which is that his parents wanted to have a baby that they chose to do this. But there's actually nothing in the text that says that. It just says when they presented themselves to the Public Health Planned Parenthood Center. So maybe they had to. Uh, maybe everyone is, in fact, obligated uh, by law in this society to give birth to at least one child, maybe several children who are going to go do this kind of indentured servitude out in the galaxy, uh, maybe doing the work actually of rendering the galaxy uh, inhabitable by human beings, a kind of internal colonization of the of the galaxy or something like that. Uh, it's unclear to, to me w- whether Public Health Planned Parenthood Center is uh, using the word public there in the sense of uh, public library, as in or run by the state, or public school, as in run by the state, run by the government, or if it's uh, Planned Parenthood Center the way that we have Planned Parenthood Center, which is a private organization, and just saying this is a private organization concerned with uh, public health, is meaning the health of the community and not necessarily referring to the state there, because then the beneficiary, right, of this system, if that is what the system is, is a galactic corporation. It's a, it's a private business enterprise, not the state it, itself. Yeah. And it seems to me as though the society that Jerry Dark is born into is getting to the point where the these laws can be challenged and repealed uh, in the same way that in Dickens' lifetime, kind of his literary endeavors change the public view, uh, not in the state sense, but also in the state sense of child labor and and the expectations of that. So I think that that is a part of it as well, where the GCLU is able to now challenge these laws and look at the justice of them and what is a child and what should their life be made up of. But it's interesting that he seems to be poking more fun at the ACLU's ability to impact change here than he is supporting the fact that these laws would be unjust in some way. So if we're looking at a biographer writing this or a historian or a scholar of some sort, there are a lot of assumed norms that we just don't have access to. And, and that really is where I, I want to go next. We can we can leave aside the the, the GCLU here and, and talk about the authorial voice of this story. And, and here, Brandon, I'll just ask you this as an open-ended question. Who is telling this story, do you think? And, and, and who is the audience for this story? I, I guess we must know that the audience is, is quite distant in the future, given the timescale of the story. But who is it then that is, is telling this story? I mean, this question really fascinates me because it's not one that that struck me as being important to the in world of the story uh, until you asked it. And that's because it's presented as a morality play from the beginning. The narrator is asking us, the reader, and is addressing the reader directly to determine whether or not Jerry Dark's life is a blessing or a curse. And so to think of the way that it's presented as a morality tale or a morality play, and then also look for an in-world reason for the voice of the narrator is really fascinating because it is a little bit inconsistent. They're a little bit in conflict with each other. But getting that out of the way, I think it's a really just best to take a question at face value uh, rather than quibble over the, the reason for the question. And and to look at this 
narrative voice as being a person who is writing this story clearly after at least the 3000 years if uh they didn't indeed if the cat forms did indeed terraform the world or, or change the world after 3000 years and is presenting it to either red forms or the cat forms uh, addressing the culture addressing the uh maybe the the moment of the fall of man of sort for this world we have the reference to the fall here in this story when jerry warns the executives of the board of december about their action in in killing sentient life in order to continue the status quo in order to keep their own timeline as convenient for everybody as possible rather than adjusting their convenience and comfort for the sake of another life form for the sake of another uh, intelligent life form and so this bit of morality telling could be to either of the two cultures that may or may not have developed on the planet as a sort of almost historical and scriptural referent in the same way there are parts of the old testament that play as history that are about how these people came to be a people how the israelites came to be a people and so i think it's on that level a bit of scholarship is taking place addressing why the world is the way it is why there are problems in the world and how maybe to uh, make changes in some sense, how to live your life. And it's kind of on you to make the decision whether this decision to terraform this planet was a blessing or a curse. And this is a big question because we don't know how the vote turned out at the end. We don't know whether Jerry won or lost. Well, I think you're you're spot on about the 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 distance in time and and also the the purpose, the generic purpose anyway of of what this story is. And I think that that also explains where some of this dystopic world building happens at the beginning of the story because that's going to be relevant to whether or not Jerry is seen as a kind of hero here. And so we need to see that the world that the the cat forms came from was this awful place where children were genetically modified and and then sent out to other planets as uh, we keep saying indentured servants but you know slaves is really what we ought to say and that that is a world worth getting away from i think that that's a really big part of this story but i think now before we go on we should we should pause and uh, have a bit of a meta conversation here which is simply <laughs> right. to say that uh, our very next episode of this show is going to be uh celebrating having reached the milestone of our 100th episode uh, and that's a pretty big deal we're excited to have gotten to that point it's a big milestone uh, another big milestone that uh, most podcasts go through is the lost episode, the episode that got deleted, that didn't get recorded, that had some kind of technical problem, and that you have to do over. And uh, we actually made it 100 episodes before that, but this is that episode. So this is, in fact, the second time that we have had this conversation. But it actually turns out that that's awesome because we got 80%, maybe 90% of the way through the first version of this discussion episode before we realized that you and I had a totally different answer to uh, probably the biggest, most important factual thing here in this story. And so now we're going to take the opportunity here to lay that out for each other and for the audience at the top of the discussion 
discussion and then run through the the categories, the topics that I want to talk about, really kind of explaining to each other how we answer those questions, how we read those themes in light of how we answer the question of what happens between the penultimate and ultimate scene here at the end. And so really the question is for you, Brandon, does Jerry persuade the cat forms to slow down the terraforming or or not, right? Is this an optimistic or a pessimistic ending is really what we're getting at. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big question. And I believe Jerry lost the vote, though in kind of reading the story more closely with a mind to answering this question, um, it's pretty confusing to me because I think there are some errors actually in the story. So the main problem that I have with the telling of this story, which is almost none, this is this is a problem of storytelling that's really tied up in this question of whether or not Jerry won or lost, is how many stations are there on the planet? We know there are 20 world change units, but the number of station changes because the language shifts a little bit at the end of the story, where it seems as though there are 20 stations, there are 19 other stations we get, including the Deadland station. And to me, that means that everybody's at the main station in cryo sleep and then they go out to their station in the flyers uh and then there are uh, maybe 40 between 20 and 40 people active uh cat forms active at any given time at the end of the story though we have that station eight and station six went down which still lends itself to the reading that there are 20 stations but then the language shifts and says that the red forms are aiming their laser weapons or Jerry's laser weapons at the other two stations, which indicates that there are like five stations with a bunch of world change units in each. And so that slip of language really threw me off because it's clear that Jerry is destroying these world change units in order to get his audience with the executive board of December. So that to me is a little bit uh can throw you off a little bit but i i do think that yes the time extended a little bit because of the number of world change units that were destroyed which i think are three but that jerry's choice to live in exile to not return to not watch and discover whether or not the red forms are going to survive their evolution of the next 1500 years his decision to remain as their present God is uh, is a kind of uh, curse. It's a curse he's taking on. It's a burden he's taking on rather than a blessing. And so I think the end of the story is that he's decided to live as the God of the red forms because they're going to become extinct. I think if they were, if he had won the vote and he would have been more optimistic about waking up in 250 years and seeing their evolution progress their ad- adaptive abilities to the environment and so that's my reading of the story he lost the vote and he takes on the kind of cursed burden of being a god rather than continuing to be an absent god in these in these l- creatures lives because he knows they're not going to make it 
Right. And I, on the other hand, had an optimistic reading of this ending. I think he won the vote. I think that the cat forms woke up and he was able to make his case and he won the vote and that his choice to remain with the red forms rather than go back into cryogenic sleep has a, a, a different resonance to me. We'll, we'll get into that a, a little bit later. I, I do want to address the point that you made about the, the slip in language here. And, and here we're looking at page 277. Uh, in the uh, NESFA volumes that we've we've got here, the the Power and Light volume, and it is actually not two other installations. It is just two installations. He just says, at the moment, these weapons are manned by red forms and aimed at two installations. So I don't think there is actually that that slip that you were thinking of. And so for me, I was even thinking that in some ways it doesn't maybe matter all that much if he won the vote or not, because he has already slowed it down by something like 15%, uh, which may be enough for these people. But I do also even think that he, he won the vote. And so we did not lay this out when we did this episode. So the first time uh, until the very end, uh, when we finally realized that we were kind of talking past each other and the way that we were looking at some of the themes and the approach that Zelazny has here. And so now we're going to stake out these opposite positions here. We're not actually going to try to persuade each other. I mean, maybe we can do that at the end, but I think it's more fun and I think it's more fruitful to try to present a fully fledged out reading or a fully fleshed out reading of this story from your pessimistic view (laughs) and my optimistic view. So what I want to do now is just go through uh, the rest of the topics that I have outlined here and kind of present to each other our our reading along those lines. And the first of the topics that I've, I've got here is religion, which you've invoked already in your answer, Brandon. Religion and religious language, even religious acts are all over this story. But I think the biggest motif, right, is the invocation of Eden, uh, heaven, the the promised land. These, I think, are are used kind of interchangeably here, although I think, you know, we might quibble with with the use of that. These are different ideas, different concepts in Jewish and Christian and Islamic source material. But uh, what we're really getting at here, what Zelazny is getting at here is trying to point to the idea of leaving Earth and creating a world, creating a place that is an ecological paradise for the cat forms. And for me, I see here in this story of going to Eden, going to heaven, going to the promised land, I see Jerry Dark as Moses. And this is going to inform what I think is going on with the the authorial voice here of the story as well, because Jerry Dark leads his people to a special land just for them, right? The promised land. Uh, He has to take his people actually out of a type of servitude in order to do that and has to work very hard to do it, in fact, as well, though Zelazny's kind of tongue-in-cheek and kind of comical as he describes the ease with which Jerry Dark plays the stock market, I guess. But along the way, right, Jerry has to rebuke his people for their immoral behavior. And then, and I think this is what's the most important here, at the end, he doesn't actually get to see the promised land for himself. And that is the Moses story. And so for me, the authorial voice of the story is a type of hagiography, that this is a type of saint's life or the life of a holy person, that this is the life of the person who brought us to the promised land. But on top of that, brought us to this land where there's now this unimagined new civilization, new society, where there are two sentient species. And this is the story of how we got this way and all the things that Jerry, this Moses figure, maybe even something of a savior figure, had to do in order to make this world possible. I mean, there is a lot of Moses in in Jerry, as you 
pointed out, he's also got a lot of rage and anger, which is kind of a Moses issue as well. <laughs> um, that comes up a lot. He's He's got special access to hearing the voice of God. He wonders if he's a prophet. He's the first person to really discover God on this planet. And though that is not the case in the Moses story, it is sort of the case for Moses at the time of the Israelites, even though they have their own culture as slaves in Egypt. We also have him going out. We have him kind of presiding over these people who have formed a new religion around him being a god or his gods. Um, He acts as a judge. Uh, But I, I think you're also picking up on a lot of what a prophet is to a people in in the judeo-christian history prophets are not typically well regarded in their own time they're martyred or ignored or killed i mean you have like samuel who is a, a prophet who finds king david um though he's gets into trouble with saul but when you get into you know figures like daniel or uh isaiah or you know, Amos, like some of the minor prophets as well, they're they're really like the crazy people yelling on the streets and, and doing crazy stuff because God asked them to. And it's not in their own time that they're recognized as having value per se. It's more like they are the course corrector for the culture at the time. And what makes me skeptical of Jerry being this kind of heroic figure is is that relationship that the parallels drawn between himself and sort of Old Testament prophets. I mean, even Jesus was crucified, right? <laughs> was also a prophet. So I do think that part of what Zelazny is doing here is exploring the formation of culture and tradition. This comes up a number of times in the story, and religion is a big part of a culture's identity, its traditions. Many non-religious people still celebrate Christmas and Christmas itself, uh, you know, though it's a Christian holiday or holy day for a long time prior to that was a kind of a Germanic ritual, uh, r- religious practice as well. So I think Selazny is looking at the development of a culture and whoever's writing this story is looking at one of the figures. It could be a hagiography, as you suggest, that instantiated a lot of this culture and tradition. The, you know, maybe uh, Millennium Eve or maybe yearly celebration of drinking snow punch, snowflower punch <laughs> and uh, laughing and spending time together with loved ones. The death traditions that come up for this culture, the uh, prophetic speech, the openness to divine voices or uh, visions metaphysical visions, things like that, that are the desire to find the signal in the noise of the the machines. All of this stuff, to me, Jerry does not need to have to win in order for him to be this figure. In fact, it, it makes him a stronger figure historically or prophetically for people who have come after him by a millennia or so or more to have lost the vote and to be the one who was right and a a kind of consistent cultural reminder of the way to live and the way to be. Though I do think another reason why I lost, I think he lost the vote is 
his approach to convincing people is very different from Sansa's. And so we're also getting maybe a, a hagiography of Sansa, of Jerry taking on the attitudes of the true saint in the story, but not knowing how to execute them properly, not knowing how to live out those beliefs properly. And so his growth, his story growth is maybe to be continued after the end of this story as he learns to take on that self-sacrifice, that love of others in the way that Sansa demonstrated, but he kind of didn't learn the lesson in the action of the story. Yeah, I want to talk about Sansa and her role in all of this in uh, in just a few minutes. But I do want to say first that you know, I could certainly be persuaded of this perspective that you've got here, that it's it's not celebrating, it's not commemorating the person who created the great society that we're in now, but but someone whom we should have listened to in the past, because now we're living with the guilt of this genocide that uh, maybe our ancestors, uh, our, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, whatever it might be, perpetuated, and that that is is really the the tone of this story and certainly something that troubled me in my uh, attempt at having an optimistic reading here is that in scripture not seeing the promised land is something of a punishment for Moses's own failings and I I couldn't quite put my finger on how uh, to line that up with Jerry's story as we we get here I, I wondered if you had any solutions to that Well, it's the same thing. I mean, Moses ultimately got angry too many times and did stuff that God told him to do, but like was super mad and (laughs) harsh about it. (laughs) So like, (laughs) you know, he he wasn't allowed to enter in because enter into the promised land because he was maybe the wrong person to lead. It's his anger that caused the uh, Israelites to continue to wander his missteps his his inability to convince them to not make graven images, not make the golden calf and all this stuff that makes him a really good prophet and him being right. But then could he be a good king in, in the promised land? And so he dies outside of it. And, you know, Jeremiah is the one who, who enters into the promised land with the people. But this this story of the promised land is always story a story of tension that always returns to why can't we have nice things around here, basically? <laughs> you know, why can't we be the people we are called to be? Why can't we really live as a as a light to the rest of the world? Why are we always falling so short of the excellence that we are meant to be living towards? And I really view this story as a story of a formation of a culture. And this is a one of the cultural stories and the formation of traditions. And this is one of these traditional stories that is told maybe far in the future that is an attempt to answer those questions of we were given every opportunity to create our own society, to build our own traditions, to have our own culture, and yet we're falling so far short of it. What's the original sin of our culture that we need to overcome? And that to me is what this story is about. Right. And here's where I want to bring in Sansa, because I agree with most of what you have to say there. It's just really that you have a pessimistic view of it. I have an optimistic view of it. I think the red forms are are there and that this is the story of how Jerry got himself morally 
right that he took up the cause that Sansa was uh, was championing. And, and part of the reason that I think this is just from a storytelling standpoint of if this is going to be the story of how someone is is pointing over there and saying, look, those are people and we're uh, committing a genocide against them by ecologically engineering this planet to suit our needs, then there's no need for that story to have more than one character here, right? That we don't need Sansa in that story. If the story isn't about how Jerry takes up that cause and and wins and that Sansa's not around to see it. Because otherwise, if it's about how that worldview fails, then the the crisis of the story just needs to be that failure and not this kind of conversion story that we get in the middle here. Yeah, I think you're right. But if, if we're looking at it as a kind of uh, culture a kind of culture origination story, this prophet carries with him, this Jerry character carries with him also the flaw of the culture. He has the cold attitude. He is not awake to the realities of the circumstance. He is in it for his own comfort and convenience. And it takes an act of self-sacrificial love that he does not actually imitate. He imitates the beliefs and attitudes of Sansa, but not her actions. And I think that that is the, the flaw of the character. That's why you need a Sansa character if you're reading this story as a cultural formation story or a cultural origin story in order to demonstrate the higher meaning behind Jerry's actions and attitudes and beliefs. And you build in the flaw the flaws of the culture into that character of Jerry as an almost mythical level of the flaws that the people carry with them. He's not Sansa is the real saint in the story and he needs to take, he needs to learn to take up her cause, but he fails in executing it in the right way. He fails to convince the cat forms that what he's doing is right because he's still not willing to sacrifice himself or anything he cares about in order to convince them and show them that his way, his willingness to give up in order to show the value of a life is the right path to go down. Instead, he destroys things that are meaningful to the community, not things that are meaningful to himself. And so I think all that tension is kind of built in here in in the story. Well, I mean, he destroys the mechanism by which his people are committing a genocide, right? That's that's the way I think that I would look at it. And and, and this is where I want to take us into uh, another topic. We're going to turn to we're going to return to religion uh, again later. We'll circle back to that. But certainly, environmentalism is a big part of of this story. It's a major theme in this story. And Zelazny is writing this story not at the height of, but uh, maybe during the the nascence of the eco terrorism that was maybe such a huge deal in the the nineteen. 1970- 70s and, and the, the 1980s uh, before the uh, the crew of the Enterprise came back from the, the future to save the whales <laughs> for us. And to me, this seems really topical for his day. For us, the environmental concern, of course, is is climate change. Uh, ecoterrorism was very much about uh, destruction of habitats for species or just the destruction of species like the humpbacked whale, for example, or also the poisoning of environments through the, the, the dumping of chemicals and the use of radiation and, and, and so on. And because I read this story as a success for Jerry Dark, that he's the hero, that he won— 
the question I had was, whoa, is Zelazny defending? Is he even advocating for eco-terrorism here? Is he saying, hey, if uh, if democracy isn't going to work, if the entrenched uh, establishment that uh, runs the democracy won't give you access to the democratic mechanisms for letting the people have their say, then the only thing you can do is to take direct action, to circumvent all of the, the bureaucracy uh, and take direct action to commit acts of eco-terrorism. But you don't see this as being in praise of Jerry's actions. I don't think so. I think it kind of depends on how you read it. One, Keys to December here, the December Club. All of this, to me, must be a reference to the Decemberists and the Decemberist uprising and uh, that took place in Russia in 1825, where a bunch of soldiers, 3,000 about, led a protest against the Tsar's ascendancy to the throne. And I don't know my Russian history well enough to go much more into it beyond that. Uh, but it, it was kind of a pro-Western revolution, at least on some levels. So that does have that going for it. I, I think we have to think in terms of uh, revolt and revolution and uprising when we're using this idea of naming a group of people after the month of December and their actions. So there is that connotation in the title of the story, in the in the group of people, how they name themselves, how they call themselves. But I, I think this story is about what it means for people to collectivize on their own level and strike out on their own rather than continually waiting for the law or the government to catch up to their needs as a community. And so what I do think this story is in praise of is for people in minority positions or who live in an unjust circumstance in their society due to laws not recognizing their rights or their needs or letting corporations take over the responsibilities of a government to look after the well-being of their citizens, to kind of replace citizenship with uh, indentured servitude or serfdom uh, for the needs of a corporation. I think this story is in praise of those people who are experiencing that injustice or that poor quality of life as a result of laws favoring money and those in power to collectivize and live together and make their own decisions. This is something that early Christians have done. This is something that is part of the early history of Christianity. Uh, this is a big part of uh, uh, the American civil rights movement. It wasn't people communicating over the internet, uh, though a lot of letters were passed around. It was people getting together and acting in a group on behalf of their own rights rather than waiting for the law to catch up to their needs. And I think that that is a part of what's going on in this story. And Jerry is still very much in that position. So he's recognized that they have done, as Sansa has said, to another culture what was done to them, and they need an advocate. And he's not going to wait for the law to catch up to the needs of the red forms. He's not going to wait for the board of December to catch up to the reality of the situation as he sees it. And so that's kind of the plight of the romantic hero, the Luciferian hero, the Promethean hero. And that's what Jerry Dark gets up to. He starts by recognizing the needs of his community and then he recognizes the need to be an individual and 
when the community is doing something that's unjust. And this is always the tension that is placed on communities of people when they need to choose what's best for the collective over what's best for the individual. And this tension is always in play. And Jerry here is that kind of Promethean hero. He's going to step out and take action on his own, regardless of the consequences. And I don't know if this story then is in praise of that type of heroic action, as it is much about whether taking on that burden of action is a blessing or a curse. And that's kind of the moral of the story that Zelazny is asking us to engage with. If you're going to step out of your community because you think your community is unjust, is that a blessing or a curse to take on that kind of power of God, that power of revolt or the power of rising up against an unjust system that maybe you have a hand in creating or you have been complicit in for a really long time. And this is kind of the Pauline conversion story as well. And my sense of this was that the answer to the question is yes, it's it's both a blessing and a curse, right? That that Jerry's life in in some narrative, some way that we could tell this story is is awful. Uh, he grows up in an environment that he's not fit to to live in, that he's physically incapable of living in, and one of the many things that that deprives him of is the fullness of love. Right? There's a, a an emphasis placed here in the story on the fact that he was never able to touch or be touched by his mom and 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 dad ever. So even as a baby, he never got to be held by a, a, a person. He never got to to feel the, the fullness of love. He succeeds in, in getting his people uh, away from Pharaoh and into something that uh, they can turn into, at any rate, a promised land. And he's going to be there with the love of his life. And they are going to be able to be free in the environment. And, and here is a situation, here's a case in which Jerry will be able to know the fullness of love and also the fullness of participation in a human community. But then Sansa is is taken from him and he doesn't actually get that life, this life that he's been yearning for. And there's really at that point, no way to get that back. There's no way to repair that. And so at that point already, his life is cursed. He can't have the life that he wants. There's not going to be any true happiness for him. And this is the moment where he decides, in my reading anyway, that if he can't be happy, he can at least be good. And he stops living for himself and begins to live for the the red forms because he takes on this sense of responsibility for them. He does become a Promethean figure uh, for them in the, the sense that he's uh, accidentally at first introducing them to technology when he, he drops the, the knife, leaves that for them. Uh, I guess also even before that, they have observed the, the cat forms. They've observed Jerry and Sansa at this station in the Deadlands and have been mimicking making them, learning from them in in some sense. But to me, ultimately, it's this transition from Jerry living not for himself anymore, but living for them, that seeing that they have, through whatever means, become sentient, that they are now people. And it's up to him to protect them. It's it's up to him to make a world, uh, not selfishly for himself, but to make a world for these other people, or really to make a world for all the people, both red forms and cat forms, to to, to live in here. Uh, so that, that was my sense of the, the Prometheanness, or maybe the Lucifer if you want, of of Jerry Dark, the Jerry Dark as God part of this story, uh, kind of in complement or in tandem with the, the Jerry Dark as Moses part of the story. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying here. I just think that his decision to take 
that responsibility on to become the god of these figures, to remain silent, to recognize his role in their suffering, but have having no power to really change it, not a true god like an omnipotent god like we think of, that this is something he chooses to do as a sort of self-exile, as a, as a decision to live with the guilt of his actions for the rest of his natural life because they will die out in the next 250 years or, or 500 years. And so to give them what he can while he's alive rather than continuing to observe from a distance. Right. You said something like this at the the top of the discussion where part of your reading of this as a pessimistic story in which Jerry loses the vote de- depends on his choice here. But I actually would be totally unconvinced by Jerry winning the vote if he had gone back into the cryogenic sleep because I could not see him going back to live in that community if they didn't share his values, if he was unable to convince them of the morality of his position and the, in particular the immorality of the position of the board. How can you lose that vote and then go back to go back to to sleep. And for me, the fact that he chooses to do this even after he's won the vote suggests that the whole thing, one, has kind of a a dirty feeling to him, the fact that he had to commit eco-terrorism in order to do this. But in particular, I, I think it's really just rooted in the fact that he doesn't really want to see that world anymore because he's lost Sansa. He's lost his real purpose there, but that here is where he can have a purpose, again, by living with the Red Forms and being Prometheus for them, helping them in, in some way, at least shepherding them, guiding them, protecting them in some way. I don't think that this choice is dependent on having lost the vote uh, at all. I think this choice is rooted in the death of Sansa and has nothing to do with the vote. That could be. I mean, I I would have read him going back to cryosleep as a successful vote because the only conditions under which he would have done that would have been to been completely assured that he would wake up again in 250 years and the timeline would be extended and that he could... uh, resume his purpose of kind of interacting with these creatures and watching them develop and evolve and ensure their safety over the course of the next 6,000 years and continue to monitor their adaptability through his kind of odd movement through time. And so my reading is just so different from yours on this. Well, I wonder. I wonder about the technology of that. And actually, I'm thinking back now to to the the beginning of this story, where we get these these two scenes where uh, Jerry wakes up and decides not to wake up Sansa, and then Sansa wakes up and decides not to wake up Jerry. I kind of wondered what some of the bigger purpose of that was. Why is he showing us that? And I think that he's showing us. I think Zelazny is showing us that as a way of showing us that Jerry can't go back to sleep if he wants to make sure that the climate change, the ecological engineering, the terraforming is being slowed down because they might just not wake him up again, showing us that he's not in charge of his own cryogenic sleep chamber, that there's no way to police that. Yeah, I mean, I thought of that as well, but what's his lifespan? 70 more years, 100 more years? So he won't even be around to see anything. So all he can do is is live out the rest of his natural life rather than actually take on that that position of god that's outside of time for the subjects of that god. And I think I just I just think the only way he would have taken on that outside of time position is if he 
could and and still continue to have that purpose of monitoring whether or not these guys could adapt was if he was fully assured of his winning the vote. And so I think this is almost a, it's almost a nihilistic choice. I think his not speaking, his not interacting, um, all this stuff is, is a display of hubris on, on some level, uh, more than it is of his compassion or responsibility for the red forms. Well, when we started having this conversation, I said we weren't going to necessarily try to uh, persuade each other of our positions. And then, of course, we we devolved into <laughs> doing that uh, pretty quickly. So certainly, if ever there were a call to the the forum to talk with us about a story or to take up sides on a reading of a story, I think this is it. I would love to have this conversation and to have this conversation not just about what's in the text, uh, but thinking about things that you, the the listener, might know about Zelazny that we don't know, uh, in particular, maybe his positions on uh, uh, environmentalism, on politics, uh, all sorts of things that we I just don't really know much about the biography of Zelazny, though these two volumes that we now have uh, of his short stories here from the NESFA do have quite a bit of biographical information, which uh, I do intend actually to read uh, before we pick up with the, the next novella of Zelazny's that we're going to do over on Elder Sign a little bit later this year. But I think it is time now for us to leave the keys to December behind, at least temporarily, and to return to Tracking Song, a story I don't really kind of ever want to stop talking about or thinking about, (laughs) uh, and uh, talk about Tracking Song in light of what we have read here. And I'm just going to start by pointing out or posing one question that we did not pose at all, that certainly did not occur to me at all. Uh, You and I, Brandon, read Tracking Song 100% as if the great sleigh, as if the the narrator and the, the people of the great sleigh were recently arrived at the planet of tracking song whether or not that's mars uh, from earth or, or at least from space that the great slate is a spaceship of of some sort it did not at all occur to me to wonder if the narrator and the people of the great sleigh had not recently arrived from space but in fact have been cryogenically frozen in some other cave somewhere else on the the planet and that they've woken up now to travel around the planet and check on the progress of their handiwork i know think that's what's going on but we didn't even raise that and i think that we should yeah i mean i i don't think that that reading really bears up to any scrutiny of the text of stra- tracking song. And and the main reason is because the only cave we get the machine city in the story tracking song is much warmer. So it wouldn't be uh, a cryogenic chamber. It's very old. Um, the man who was inside of it, Mantru, who kind of rules over the machines is not there's no indication that he's woken from a, a slumber of any kind. Uh, I think I think it's more likely that the Great Slay is coming to check on the progress, the adaptation of the beast men, so called, on this planet every so often. And maybe this is their first return after who knows how long. And and if we're thinking of both of these stories in terms of uh, promised land type of story for for humans. The the people on the Great Sleigh are really waiting for this place to be prepared for them to return to, which is kind of the promised land idea that you're entering into a place that's been prepared for you rather than uh, living through the preparation phase. But there is an indication that they are doing this responsibly by checking in and, and by checking on the creatures, making sure they're adapting fully to the environmental changes and, and all this sort of stuff. 
And you've got some assumptions there that, that I shared with you when we were covering Tracking Song, but now the Keys to December has made me want to revisit some of those assumptions. And we had kind of, we had taken as a, a given, maybe taken for granted that uh, humans had genetically engineered the creatures that have become the beastmen, that they've developed uh, sentience and some kind of civilization or at least some kind of culture in that it materially adapts to the in- environment. Uh, but a question that I didn't really think to ask in that story until having read The Keys to December was the question of whether or not the humans were actually surprised to discover that animals had become people in their absence, that they they come back to the planet on the spaceship and see that these these creatures that they had made, that they had genetically engineered, uh, perhaps just to be better at doing some of the, the labor that they required on this planet, have developed a real full sentience that they've turned into people. And of course, the reason that question is raised by the Keys to December is that it's accidental here in this story. And so I want to revisit that in Tracking Song. Do you think that that development was something that was intentional? Or do you think it was accidental and that the people of the Great Slay are, are, are surprised to, to discover cultures and civilizations and sentient people here on this planet? My reading of Tracking Song is that this decision is intentional, that the people of the Great Slay came back and and found what they had hoped to find. They were ready to kind of impart wisdom and uh, ways of living to these creatures. They were maybe pleased to find that they had adapted, that if they had started off more as beasts than men, that that over generations, their DNA, their genetic engineering expressed more human traits than animal traits. Uh, and, and that their plan is to kind of cohabitate with these creatures. And, and the creatures were there really, maybe not to create their own civilizations, but to steward the world through its adaptation. And I think that we can say that because Gene Wolfe is really, really caught up in ideas of responsibility to our natural environment that are rooted in stewardship. And we talked this, talked about this a little bit in the recap episode, that one of the tensions of Keys to December is the tension between the entitlement, the entitled attitude that comes with uh, a sense of dominion that has developed in our own time, has developed over the course of our whole human history, and the responsibilities of stewardship. And I think we see Gene Wolfe writing Tracking Song with a mind to the responsibilities of, of stewardship. The people of the Great Slay are worthy of pursuit. They're worthy of admiration. They're worthy being of they're worthy of being an object of desire for the main character. And the story just wouldn't work if all these pieces about the intentionality of the actions of the people on the Great Slay weren't wholly good. It wouldn't be uh, the same story that it is. And I think Zelazny struggling with these two different attitudes and Gene Wolfe is uh, assuming one and showing in the right way to go about doing this. Something at the heart of this and something else that I don't think we really gave enough space or, or, or time to in our discussion episode for Tracking Song was wondering what 
even is the point of terraforming this this planet in the the first place right what is actually the mission of the the terraformers why are they trying to make this planet like earth uh, i think i had assumed that they were trying to render it habitable for human beings. But then I did tease out uh, the idea that maybe this is uh, a kind of planet of the ape scenario where they've done all of this genetic engineering on Earth and realized they've accidentally made people. And how can humans and sentient wolves ever possibly live together in the same society? So we better give them their own planet to, to go live in. I was joking when I said that, but now I actually wonder if maybe there's not something to that. I mean, I totally think that could be the case and I don't think that that would be a poor reading of the story, but then we have to ask why the people of the Great Slay are coming at all to return to the planet that they've terraformed for these genetic, genetically altered uh, life forms, intelligent life forms. And I think it, that reading, I think if you think too much about that reading, you kind of end up with a, a sort of Kipling-esque white man's burden sort of reading that now that these creatures have developed to a certain degree, it's up to the humans, the real people, the real representation of the divine in some sense, to come and export their culture to them to show them a better way to live. Um, but I think that that is not the case in Tracking Song, that the whole point of going into a springtime to the planet finally being ready for human habitation is that these cultures will coexist, though there is some cultural exportation needed of civilization, of an advanced civilization, in order for them to coexist peacefully. And also in Tracking Song, we get that promised land reading from, as I brought up in, the, in those episodes from Isaiah, about the 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 you know the wolf and the lamb being able to live together side by side so that this type of uh, cycle of violence this need to prey and hunt on one another no longer needs to take place so it's more uh you know of that level of the promised land of th the true peaceable kingdom on on a new world rather than it is if we can just export our ideas to everybody else the world would be better for us to live in well, I don't think that Wolf is framing that in in colonial or imperialist terms. I mean, he's 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 framing it in in missionary or or salvific terms. But there definitely is that going on. I mean, there is mission work going on in this story, in the sense that the people of the Great Slay are visiting the different cultures here, the different sentient animals, and teaching them how they're going to have to live in the new environment. And and that's the answer to your question of why would they go back is that they're back to finish the terraforming, right? That we, we know that that's what they're doing there. The, the silver dust, the metallic dust in the sky that is reflecting the, the light that is, is putting the finishing touches or, or at least taking it to a next stage, the taking the terraforming to a next stage that they're there for that. So, so whether or not this is something that is being done on behalf of the animals or is something that was being done for humans, humans and the humans have simply discovered that the animals have developed sentience since the last time they were here, which we don't know how long ago that was, uh, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of years, right? The, the scale of the keys to December have developed this sentience and, and maybe have to alter their, their mission here. But even all of the prophetic language is not really about humans and Wigiki or humans and Pamagaka learning to live together. It's about Pamagaka and Wigiki learning to live together or, or really specifically what we get. It's it's Pamagaka learning not to eat the eggs of sentient birds. Don't eat other <laughs> right. people's babies, right? Is the the real the real lesson there. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's a big part of the story. I think 
Wolf avoids that, you know, Kipling-esque, that colonial attitude by really couching it in the biblical language of peace, of people learning to live peaceably with one another, of their of there being a restoration of an order in the world that does not rely upon creatures killing one another for sustenance. It certainly seems that Wolf has dialed up to 11 the use of prophecy in uh, Zelazny's approach to telling this story or the use of prophets in biblical illusions in, in telling this story. But he also, I think, ultimately has a much more optimistic view than Zelazny does. I will say much more optimistic view. You might say optimistic view at all, since you think Zelazny <laughs> is, is pessimistic. Well, not just it's just cursed. It's just cursed. <laughs> but I want to point out one more thing that these two stories have in common before we will finally lay Tracking Song to bed. Though then we have one more thing that I want to talk about before we uh, we close out this episode. But clearly the, the, the major theme, or at least a major theme that these two stories share is personhood, right? This question of how do we determine that a living being is a person and not just a, a plant or a, you know a mushroom or, or an animal? Uh, this is a question, right, that Wolf asks all the time. It was one of the major themes of the fifth head of Cerberus. And in this story, in the Keys to December, I mean, at least, Zelazny hangs this on communication, right? Communication is the threshold where humanity begins. The red forms can be considered people if we can communicate with them, right? If we can make ourselves understood and if we can learn to understand them. Uh, and I wonder, Brandon, how you think that compares with Wolf's approach in Tracking Song. Is it communication or is it something else that he's using as that marker? Well, first, I just want to say something that struck me just now is that at the end of Keys to December, Jerry decides not to communicate with the Red Forms anymore with language that somehow that somehow once intelligence or intelligent life or sentience or whatever is demonstrated, there is something to not saying anymore and kind of being a cipher almost to the red forms that that Jerry does. So he has demonstrated his superiority by being the first person to try to communicate with them. He's learned to communicate with them. He's taught them to use laser guns or, you know, fire in in the Promethean sense. And then he goes back and he's reserved once again to kind of uh, take on this position of God and God is silent. So Zelazny is looking at communication as maybe a middle ground that both below the threshold of communication is not intelligence, but beyond the threshold of communication is also a kind of supreme intelligence. Um, and it just kind of struck me that, that that kind of language question is put into play in a really interesting way by the time we get to the end of the story of Keys to December. Yeah, that's a great observation. I was a little bit puzzled by that ending other than the you know, the only thing I could really think of to to solve the the, the questions that I had about that that bit of it is that uh, Jerry had been watching some old episodes of The Next Generation and decided the Prime Directive was a pretty good idea and maybe <laughs> he should stop interfering. But I think your answer is a lot better. Right. Well, to answer your question now, I think that language is a big indicator of intelligence because it shows the need to communicate with others in, in order to succeed as a group. And so also group activity that is maybe rooted in differences of viewpoints or differences of opinion is also key to intelligence, to be an individual. Um, it's not just hunting as a pack. It's being in a position of 
to being threatened by a pack if you strike out by your own, um, but also to leading the pack, which means other people will fall in line even if they disagree with you, and to communicate all this using language. But I, I also think we're looking at tools being used, uh, innovating with tool with tools and hands is a big part of it, and also um, in Keys to December, we're looking at brain size as well. And I think Wolf also kind of hints hints about brain size as well, though he also is looking at robot life forms and kind of their circuitry in that story. But the ability to receive, understand, and disagree with language and decisions, I think, is a big part of both individuality and uh, and sentience. And I'm not really sure that this is where we are as a as a, a culture. We don't have to crack this now since we're we're running well over an hour already into into this episode. We don't have to take this the, the we don't have to take up this big discussion about our own culture and and our values and where we think the threshold between animal and person lies or not. But I suspect that communication is probably not, uh, or, or at least not speech, right? Uh, verbal uh, communication, literal communication, is probably not where we are. We probably are going to set that bar actually a little bit lower to something like altering the environment, uh, tool use. I mean, tool use is not what we're saying right now because we certainly are not regarding chimpanzees and other types of primates as people. But I think that we're closer to that than uh, certainly than 100 years ago people were and probably were closer to that view than Zelazny and Wolf were in the, the middle of the 20th century as well. Uh, and I'm interested actually because... Uh, Wolf's career goes on, right? This is something we're very, this is still a story that's very early in Wolf's career. And we know that he it remains invested in these questions. And I'm going to be interested in seeing how his ideas about this, about where, what's the distinction, what's the, the marker, what's the criteria uh, to see if that changes. And if so, how that changes uh, over the decades of his writing career. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to that as well. And and one other thing I want to say is it's not just the ability to be Understood. I want to make that really clear here that you could train, you know, an animal or a monkey or an ape to say certain things, to communicate in certain ways. Uh, but I think even the Planet of the Apes movie, the, the first reboot of this, shows that it's not the ability to be trained, to be, to imitate communication. It's the ability to, like, uh, meaningfully rebel and to meaningfully have discord and differences with the with with those you're communicating with that show in intelligence and and I think that that's something that often gets maybe overlooked or is not as explicit in, in our understanding of what makes a human being a human being an individual an individual and certainly if you go back and look at the race sciences and chattel slavery the idea that a person could that a person a slave could disagree or rebel was more a sign of their beastness than of their humanity and i think at this point in Zelazny's career in the 1960s 1970s uh really with the planet of the apes movies maybe if we're looking at science fiction <laughs> that it is about the the ability to rebel and meaningfully disagree like the you know decemberist revolts or something like that that make us individuals and humans not just the idea that we can be trained to act a certain way 
Well, we know that we're going to get to talk about these topics again, so we can uh, lay that to rest here. But I will say that I did not really expect that we were going to spend so much time thinking about Planet of the Apes, uh, really ever, I think, <laughs> as, as friends, let alone as uh, as podcasters. Uh, but the original Planet of the Apes novel, a, a novel written in French, uh, it's a 1963 novel. So it's very much of this time. I don't know. That might be something I, that we should take a look at someday. I don't know where, when we could possibly find the time to do that, but I don't know. That might be something that we can we can add to our our wish list because uh, I think it would be fun to take a look at that and to, to situate people like Wolf and Zelazny into the, the the zeitgeist of that book or or vice versa I guess would really be our approach but I think on that note looking ahead there uh, we can leave tracking song behind finally this is something that actually makes me uh, quite sad to do we've been living with this story really uh, for months literally behind the scenes of the uh, the episodes uh, that we created for uh, for tracking song and then now here for the keys to December but before we close out this episode, I want to I want to go back to having uh, just a, a little bit of, of fun to, to not end on our disagreement of how to how to interpret uh, the keys to December. So I want to talk about the the note on this story in the uh, NESFA edition. Uh, Zelazny says here that uh, he sold the film rights to the keys to December and that a script was even written, a full script for uh, for a film, uh, though the the act of filming never happened. It was never actually filmed. And and so the question. I've got for you, Brandon, uh, really is just if you were going to adapt this story to a film, what changes would you make to, to turn it into a movie? Well, now that we have the technology brought to us by the the great film masterpiece that is Cats, I don't, <laughs> I don't think there's too much we would we would need to change. Uh, but I think, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s, if you're looking at this, it it would probably look too much like Planet of the Apes with kind of cheesy costumes and things like that, that would distract the viewer from the real themes of the story that Zelazny is getting at. So, yeah, I don't know how you would do the animal stuff um, and really demonstrate the world building of the story well uh, with costuming and things like that. I think you'd probably have to show that genetic difference in another way or just have it be part of the the opening scroll um, or 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 something like that to say that these people were just altered and they can't live on earth and just show them living in hermetically sealed tanks or something like that instead of them being cat people. Yeah, I think you have to get rid of the cat people entirely uh, for this to work on film. And the, and the reason for that is simply that film is a, a visual storytelling medium. And we had ha- we would have to buy in first to the fact that these people in cat costumes are actually people. Uh, we would have to buy into that as kind of the premise of the story. But then the moral heart of the story is asking us to buy into the fact that some other weird looking people are actually people. And that's maybe too many steps. That's too many buy in. And so I, so I think that the, the point of view characters of the story really just need to be humans. They just need to, to look like us. They need to be live actors, live humans on, on the screen. I don't think we even need to have anything about genetic engineering and they're looking for a home. I actually might change the whole catalyst for uh, this story, especially to update it for now and just make it that uh, we ruined the earth. And so there are 28,000 humans looking for a new place to live. And this is what happens. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, we certainly don't have in our in our culture uh, savvy billionaire or uh, savvy investor uh, building a privately owned space program trying <laughs> to terraform Mars. That's really far fetched. So I think uh, I think yeah, you, you'd you'd have to change the catalyst a little bit. I don't know. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, that was that's the next question I want to ask you is maybe about casting and directing. But it sounds like you want to cast Elon Musk in the, the role of Jerry Dark. <laughs> Here. I think it would be a thinly veiled sort of Elon Musk type figure. Uh, they're they're almost the same person in this story. And at some point, somebody's going to have to ask him, well, what do you know about ecology and biology other than the <laughs> fact you have a lot of money? And just to be clear, Brandon, I want to put you on the spot here. Uh, yes or no. Are you suggesting that Elon Musk is actually a giant gray ocelot without a tail? I'm not suggesting that in in the, in the least. I don't want to get any more conspiracy <laughs> theories started here. <laughs> yeah, we are the uh, we are the source of so many conspiracy <laughs> theories. <laughs> well, do you have any thoughts about about the way that a film like this would look? Uh, you're really, and I'm really asking this because you're much more up on film. I don't think I've seen a movie in like ten or fifteen years, but you see movies a lot. Uh, who, who would direct this movie? Who should be in this movie if we were going to make it? I mean, there's people like Duncan Jones who I think would would do a really good job. He is a solid like A minus to B science fiction director who I think always nails the themes with the visuals. Um, I didn't see work world of Warcraft. So don't, don't ask me about that. one. <laughs> uh, but the other movies of his that I've seen really get science fiction in a way that, that a lot of other directors I think don't. Um, so I, I would, I would put Duncan Jones on the job. He already directed a, a lone man, uh, uh, you know the lone person manning a space station movie called Moon. He's done other uh, like high concept sci fi films that just kind of get the the emotional impact of what's going on really well. So he, he's probably who I'd set to direct. I don't have any casting direction here, but uh, I think Duncan Jones is probably our best. You know, like if somebody were to just go through and adapt the great science fiction stories of the sixties and seventies and update them and nail it, he's he'd be my top choice for that. Yeah, I have actually seen Moon, so I'm going to say I think that's a great choice. I mean, there really are maybe only two real sets that you you need for this film, and one of them is going to be the inside of the the station, and then the other can be uh, the the one kind of single. Uh, exterior environment, the outside environment, though the look of that's going to have to change from scene to scene, which I think will be would be a particularly cool thing to see on screen. As someone who likes nature vistas, I would love to to see that done, and I think that's a that's a great choice. But I think on that note, now that we have uh, a director for this movie, uh, we can uh, close the door on this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand, and I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at ClayTempleMedia.com. Once again, I'd like to remind you that we will be doing more commissioned Zelazny episodes on Elder Sign later this year. So definitely look for those. And please, and please come to the, the forum at claytemplemedia.com or join us on our subreddit, Clay Temple Media, and talk with us about this episode. Talk with us about this story. Obviously, we've had a huge disagreement about how to read this story. Uh, we would love to have you weigh in on this. Are you Team Brandon? Are you Team Glenn? I mean, we don't have to have an actual vote because I think that would just result in uh, Brandon blowing up terraforming stations anyway if we tried <laughs> to do that. Uh, but we would love to hear what you think about it. Maybe we've got it totally wrong. Maybe neither of our positions 
are right. Also, if you've got ideas about who should star in this film, we'd love to hear that as well. And of course, if you are interested in commissioning us to do an episode about your favorite story or an episode of TV or a film that you really love, or even just a special topic that you'd like us to talk about, we would love to do that for you. So be in touch if you've got ideas there. Next time, we're going to be back to celebrating a uh, much more positive milestone than uh, technical problems, and that is having reached 100 episodes. We've got interviews, we've got listener recordings, we've even got a panel from PhilCon that we're finally going to air. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we hope to see you there. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.